Good morning. Good morning. Uh, I am glad that we started with that community prayer, which was in our, you know, we, because of all the elements in our services, we work on this throughout the week and we kind of script out the whole service. And so this morning, you know, with the, with no trailer and no things and thus no screens and all that stuff, we're scrambling to print out, you know, things for us to read from and all that. And so, you know, we just went with the plan, went with the things that were already there. Um, and I remember as I was like typing that up, I was looking specifically at that community prayer and thinking like, man, it's going to feel real weird to say we found favor with God on a morning where everything's going wrong. Or, and at the same time though, I feel grateful that those are the words that we got to say. Um, I also gave a long thought to like, what do I, what do I talk about? Is it weird to just go with the message that was written? <laughs> and the answer is, I think it'll be weirder if I don't. Um, go with the message that's written. So we're going to go with it. And it, again, it feels kind of appropriate. We're talking about hope this week. Of all the weeks, we're talking about hope. Um, so we'll start here. This is the season of Advent. It's the first week of Advent. But that's a word that we don't, we don't use often. So I'll do my English major thing. And I'll point out that Latin, or that the word Advent is a word that we derive from a Latin word, as so many things are, right? And the word is Adventus, and it means coming or arrival. Advent means to come or to arrive. And it's a word that's been used by Christians for nearly, well, this word hasn't, but this concept has been uh, practiced by Christians for nearly 2,000 years now, and it's a season. This season here, um, these four weeks that lead up to the celebration of Jesus' birth at Christmas. This is the Advent season. And during this season, followers of Jesus have made a habit these last two millennia now of meditating on these two central events in the story of our faith. The first of the events is this historical and unpredictable arrival of Jesus on earth all those years ago. And the second event that we that we meditate on during this season is the biblical promise of Jesus' return. This moment when he's going to, to come back to this earth to finish this work that his arrival once upon a time began. And that work is to make all things right. That's, that's what Jesus is up to, to make all things right. We believe that despite its current brokenness, despite its current injustice, this world that God loves will one day be redeemed and be restored by him. We, we believe that it must be redeemed and restored by him because he is God and he loves it. He's God and he loves it. And so now, like the prophets who once waited on Jesus's birth, and then also like Mary who carried the baby Jesus within her, we don't know when this moment, when Jesus is going to complete the work he began. We don't know when this moment will come, but we know that it is coming. And during Advent, we reflect on the challenges that go along with being people in between, with being people who are waiting. And we reflect as we get through this season of waiting on the promises and on the character of God. So that's what Advent is. But how is Advent celebrated by the church? Well, the gatherings of the church during the season are marked by two traditions. 
One of those is common to us at Revolution, and one of those is not. The common tradition is focusing each week on these themes of Advent. And the themes over the four weeks are hope, love, joy, and peace. Hope, love, joy, and peace. And the uncommon tradition is teaching these themes through the lectionary, which is a tool uh, that the historic church has used to organize the patterns of teaching scripture. We don't often teach using the lectionary here at Revolution um, because it's a much different task for somebody in my position, um, and it requires a different way of thinking about the Bible than the way that I tend to think about it. Typically, here at Revolution, we teach in one of two ways. We either teach topically, which means that we take a subject and we explore what the Bible has to say about it, or we teach exegetically, which means that we begin with the text and we try to work our way through it. But lectionary teaching asks that we do something different because the lectionary, what it does is it provides us each week with three to four separate passages from Scripture, and it asks us to find connections between them. Now, you might think of it this way. If, if each book of the Bible is a kind of puzzle and each verse is one of the puzzle pieces in that puzzle, what the lectionary does is it suggests to us that these pieces might actually go with other, like each piece in one puzzle might actually connect to pieces in another as well. And that this way of thinking about Scripture, that there can be these connections between distinct verses or distinct books, changes this big picture that we're looking at. And so that's the task for us during weeks of Advent when we teach through the lectionaries to see this big picture that the little pictures make. And the hope this week is that hope is what we find when we look at the three passages. So what are our puzzle pieces? Well, I got them printed, fortunately, in your handout, and I'm, I've organized them um, in an alliterative way for our memory, right? So we, we learn better when things like rhyme or when things all start with the same letters. They all start with P today. The three pieces are a promise, a paradox, and a presence. A promise, a paradox, and a presence. So three Ps walk into a church. What does the first P say? The first is a passage from the prophet Isaiah who's a prophet who lives in the southern kingdom of Judah during the 8th and the 7th centuries BCE. And although his prophecies mostly dealt with the fate of where he lived, of the southern kingdom, as it's leading up to and then ultimately through their defeat and their captivity in Babylon, he also writes some things uh, about things that are coming beyond the trials of his era. And these things become a promise of God's ultimate plan, not just for Israel, but for all People. It's back to that point that if God is who God says he is, and if he feels about the world the way he feels about it, he's going to make things right. And so Isaiah voices some of the promises that go along with who we believe God to be. Specifically, we're looking here at Isaiah 2, verses 2 through 5, which read like this. In days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised above the hills, and all the nations shall stream to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall arbitrate from many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. 
O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. So Isaiah's vision here is of something that is beyond merely the restored kingdom of Judah where he lives. What he sees here is that God shows him a new house. God shows him his own house. And when that house is established, Isaiah writes that all nations shall stream to it. They'll go to it. And why would they do that? Well, it says here that it's because there is teaching there in God's house that leads to justice. That God himself shall judge between the nations, shall arbitrate for many peoples. And because of the effectiveness of God's justice, the perfection of his justice, the people that have all flocked there to hear his verdicts will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. God's kingdom will be a place not then of forced peace between people, where you just like the kind of forced peace that exists in my house, right? Like you aren't allowed to fight. That's not how God's kingdom or house is going to work. Instead, it's going to be a place of inevitable peace because there's no reason for war anymore because everyone trusts in the justice of God. And there's, I think, a pretty beautiful idea there for us to think about, which is that the cause of grief in the world isn't some inherent meanness, which is tempting for us to believe. The cause of grief, the cause of somebody stealing all of our stuff, isn't meanness. The cause is insecurity. And it's rooted in our fear that we won't be treated fairly in the world. And if that's resolved, if we can trust that we will be treated fairly, Isaiah says, not only will fairness permeate creation, but kindness will permeate creation too. There'll be no more conflict. There'll be no more need for violence or stealing stuff because there won't be any need of it either in aggression or in defense because there will be fairness that all can trust in and people will be treated as they deserve to be treated and they can rest in that. So house of Jacob, come let us walk in such a light, right? Come let us walk in the light of the Lord. So this is the first of those P's, the first puzzle piece we've been given. It's this promise. This day is coming when God's going to raise up this kingdom of fairness and of justice and then inevitably of peace. And we wait for that day. And what's our second P, our second puzzle piece? Well, this, this is a paradox. And it comes from Matthew's gospel. And in this passage, Jesus says this to his disciples. Again, it's there for you to read along. He says, but about that day and hour, no one knows, neither the angels of heaven nor the son, but only the father. For as the days of Noah were, so will be the coming of the son of a man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark and they knew nothing until the flood came and swept them all away. So too will be the coming of the son of man. Then two will be in the field and one will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding meal together. One will be taken and one will be left. So keep awake, therefore, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But understand this, 
If the owner of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an unexpected hour. Okay, so what is Jesus talking about here? Well, if we take this puzzle piece on its own, he's talking to his disciples about himself By this point in Matthew, Jesus has already identified himself as the Son of Man, and his disciples are following him because they are trusting that he's going to deliver them from their oppressors and rise up as this new king of Israel. But if we put this piece, this puzzle piece, in conversation with our first piece this morning, we might also recognize that the disciples are familiar with Isaiah. They would know Isaiah's prophecy. And so they're doing a bit of interpretive work themselves to make the conclusions that they're making. They are operating under the assumption that the kingdom of God that Isaiah is talking about is also this kingdom. And that if Jesus really is the one who's going to usher in God's plan for the world, then that must mean, the disciples conclude, he's going to topple Caesar and he's going to replace Rome. And we've talked about that um, here at Revolution over this year. And it makes sense for the disciples to see that as the answer to Isaiah's riddle. It makes sense for them to feel that way about Jesus because Rome is the greatest power that anybody in the world at that time could imagine. But it's still a belief, their belief that Jesus is here to topple Rome is a belief that makes this important assumption about the Isaiah passage that I don't know that you can make. And that assumption is that the biggest power you can think of must also be the biggest power that God can think of. And as it turns out, seeing Jesus as the new ruler of Rome is too small for what Jesus has come here to do, for what God has in mind. But the disciples don't know any of that yet. So they see in Jesus the smaller vision that to them is a giant vision of a new ruler who's going to take over their world. So if that's what they're imagining Jesus is going to do, what does Jesus tell them to help address that belief? Well, here's where we get to the paradox, because what Jesus tells them is something that doesn't actually make a lot of sense. First, he says that when this new kingdom comes into being, nobody is going to see it coming, which is a problem if you're sitting there listening to Jesus thinking, I see it coming. The angels don't know when it's coming. Jesus says even he doesn't know when it's coming. And then he tells them this story about Noah, which reminds them that all the people who ended up below the waters of the flood also didn't know what was about to happen to them. It caught them entirely off guard. So the Noah story becomes this illustration of like, here's what it feels like to be completely caught off guard. And then Jesus tells them this other group of stories about people in the future who are going to be just as surprised as the people in the past were when this sort of miraculous thing happens. Now, I don't, I don't know anybody's age in this room just about, but I'm 40, and I grew up in the 90s, and I grew up in an evangelical church. So the question I have for you is, does anybody else remember the song, I Wish We'd All Been Ready? Anybody? Oh, I'm sorry that we're all in this together. So I Wish We'd All Been Ready was a song written in 1969 by Larry Norman, but it resurfaced in my childhood as a cover by the band. Anybody? That'd be DC Talk. You're trying to remember DC Talk. I'm sorry about that, too. Anyway, 
that song, the song, I wish we'd all been ready, it dramatized these moments in this passage here by connecting them to this belief in the rapture or this moment when some Christians, not all Christians, but some Christians believe that the faithful of this world are going to disappear in an instant prior to the coming of Jesus's kingdom. The song dramatizes this by saying, two men walking up a hill, one disappears, one less standing still. I wish we'd all been ready. Now, I am not here, believe me, to comment on that eschatology, but I do want to stay with Jesus's point here, which seems to be that the truth is that nobody is ready for what's coming. It's going to come like a thief in the night, which of course gets us to the problem with this whole passage because Jesus says plainly to his disciples, keep awake. But in the very next breath, he tells them a story about the owner of a house who doesn't keep awake because a thief comes just like Jesus says the kingdom of God is going to come. If the man had known, he would have been ready, but he didn't know, and so neither will you. You need to be ready. You won't be. So what is Jesus talking about? Is it possible to be ready if you're also going to be caught off guard? Which is it? What are we supposed to do? So the paradox of our second puzzle piece is that we need to be ready, but the truth is that we won't know when what we're supposed to be ready for is going to happen, and we will be caught off guard by it. We won't be. So what can we do? Our hope then, of course, is that our third puzzle piece is going to offer us some kind of an answer. That's always the hope with lectionary teaching, that like it's going to work out. And you don't always know. You don't always know. But this third puzzle piece today comes from Paul's letter to the Romans, and it's also in your handout, and it reads like this. Besides this, you know what time it is. This is Paul talking to the Christians in Rome. You know what time it is, how it is now the moment for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we became believers. The night is far gone, the day is near. Let us then lay aside the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us live honorably as in the day. Not in reveling and drunkenness, not in debauchery and licentiousness, not in quarreling and jealousy. Instead, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Okay, so what does Paul say in answer to our riddle? When is the moment for God's kingdom to come into this world? Bringing with it all that cool stuff that Isaiah prophesied about. Well, the truth is that we still don't know. But what Paul says is that whenever the kingdom will come, now is the time to wake up. Now is the time to be watchful for it. And even more, and this I think is the key to the puzzle here, now is the time to begin living in it. The trouble with Jesus' paradox is that the kingdom is framed as something negative. It's framed as somebody to catch in the act of what they're doing. Again, did not plan on so much talk about thievery in the night of, on this Sunday of all Sundays. 3.14 a.m. Wednesday morning is when that happened. Got the footage, you know, but it doesn't matter. The trouble is that this kingdom is framed as something to catch in the act, like a thief. 
And the, this trouble is, in my view, made worse by imagining things exclusively in the way that that song from the 90s imagines them, which is as this instantaneous event that we can never actually anticipate or be ready for. But what Paul says is that if instead of imagining the kingdom as a thief in the night, we imagine the kingdom as the light of the day, we come closer to knowing how we actually live. The night is far gone, he says, and the day is near. Let us then lay aside the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us live honorably as in the day. So how do we prepare for God's kingdom? We don't do that by trying to put on our best act when God comes to judge us. We prepare by simply choosing to live all the time in the light of his promises. This is what's so meaningful about Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection. As we talked about in our series on Mark, if death can't hold God down, there is actually nothing left on this earth for us to be afraid of. And fear, as we saw in the Isaiah passage, is right, it is actually what causes all that meanness and brokenness in the world. So we put all of our puzzle pieces together. This is what we find. In light of Jesus's life, the kingdom that is still coming is something that can get started now. It can get started now. We can live in it in anticipation of its full arrival sometime off in the future. What it requires from us to, to tie all these threads together is hope. Hope is what rises up in us when we hold the mystery of God up against the faithfulness of God in our story. Hope is what we feel when we say, I don't know what's going to happen today, but I still know the ending. Hope is what I'm trying to remember as I'm feeling today. I don't know what's going to happen, but I do know the ending. Our God is always going to be bigger than our theories or our plans or our predictions for him. He's always going to be bigger than them. The prophets know that, but he is also nearer to us than we could ever expect him to be. I think that, in a nutshell, is the heart of what Jesus' life means. A God who's bigger than our predictions is also nearer than we could ever hope. When we talk about hope during the Advent season, we're giving ourselves a chance to sit down and listen and just remember that it's going to be okay. I wrote that on Tuesday. It was that night. Oh, man. The worries and the troubles of this life are real. And the truth is that they weigh us down. We become burdened by just the fact of living in a world where we experience injustice and grief and hardship. But that's not the only world that we're living in. At the same time, we've also been given this window into a new world, one which is even now beginning to rumble and stir beneath our feet. 
The beginning of that world was 2,000 years ago with Jesus' birth, his incarnation, when the God of the universe came intimately and personally to dwell among us. And when that happened, the actual thief stole into the kingdom. Although fear and death and meanness seemed to reign here on this earth, as they were sleeping in their beds of arrogance and confidence and power, a lowly husband and wife in the small town of Bethlehem took up a humble residence for the night, and to them a Savior was born. To us, a Savior was born. And the erosion of this world of fear and death began underneath their feet. And for 2,000 years now, we've tried to live in the light of that miracle. And we've seen in these 2,000 years that light beginning to work its wonders in the world. Certainly, despite the best efforts of fear and death, they could do nothing to stop the life of Jesus himself. And in the lives of his followers, fear and death have been just as impotent over the centuries. Even when we have every apparent reason to despair... We have pushed on for 2,000 years, and we will next week and the week after. When we suffer and when we grieve, when we experience pain and loss, we can feel those feelings boldly and fully. We don't need to deny them, knowing that those feelings can't destroy us forever, that nothing can. And when we gather together, like we're doing here today, we're choosing to give up the currency of this world right, which is our seemingly limited time, the most precious thing we've got. And everybody here chose to give that up, to come here today in order to feel again this stirring of light and life among us. And the nights may seem to be getting darker, but that never stops the dawn from breaking. I'm drifting wildly into poetry here, so I'm going to come back. What I want to say is just this. Hope isn't something that we're waiting for. Hope is here. Hope is living in the light of God's power instead of living in the darkness of fear. Hope is choosing community instead of choosing isolation. Hope is living generously instead of living fearfully. Hope is declaring our allegiance to the kingdom that is breaking into the world. And with the lighting of that first candle this week, we're taking our stand as people of hope in this city. And in a few moments, when you all head back out of here and return to your daily lives, you have the choice to take the spirit of hope, this spirit of possibility and wonder and trust, even when things are grim. You can take that with you. And that doesn't mean pretending to be okay when, when things are not okay. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean being happy all the time, even when you feel sad. What it means is this. It means holding space within you for the miracle of God's love, even if you feel confused by it, and then trusting that God is still who he has always claimed to be. And I'll I'll close with one last bit of poetry, right? Because I think what I just described makes all of us a kind of Mary, doesn't it? Holding space within us for the miracle of God's love, even when we're confused by it, and trusting that God is still who he has always claimed to be.